Denise is feeling funny this morning. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, I'm excited to continue our sermon series in the book of James titled Authentic Faith. If this is your first time with us, I encourage you to go to our website and hear the previous sermons so that you have context of where we've been journeying in this incredible, incredible book in the New Testament. And we're going to continue where we left off. And I want to give some context before we dive into these verses. These are just verse 13 to verse 17 in chapter 4. It's a few amount of verses. But I, I need to warn you, prepare you, that these verses are coming at us like a sledgehammer. What we're going to get into today, I truly believe, as I've been praying, studying, preparing, that God wants to bring a sledgehammer to the ways that we approach life. What we're going to get into in these verses has the potential to set us free from anxiety, to set us free from uh, just wrong perceptions of how we're supposed to approach our very limited days here on earth. God is, is coming for us today. Um, and so I hope you're ready for the word of the Lord. It says this, James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We come before your word with open, humble hearts. We need you to speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Jesus? Fill this place with your presence and cause our hearts to be set free by the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I, I have a, a, a confession. Um, I love pastoring, so because what I'm about to say may alarm you. You may say, oh man, does he not want to pastor the church anymore? Is he fantasizing about another job? No, let me tell you, I love pastoring so much that sometimes I, years ago I discovered that my hobby was more ministry. You know, like I love, I love what I do. But I do fantasize about a job. I would love this job. It would be an amazing job. And when I say it, you can't bite off of me and say, oh, I want that job. This is my job. There are very few openings of it. So if it happens that there's an opening, I'm taking it. I will beat you to it because this is my job. I would love to be a weatherman. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> Here's why. Hear me out. Hear me out. I have a credible reason for it. A meteorologist gets to tell us about pending storms. And don't you notice that when there's a storm coming, it's like this is their Super Bowl. It's their moment where they're just like, man, I'm going to have you captivated in front of your TV for a couple of days. 
And during that time, as a New Yorker, I always find out about a little island that's off the coast of, of the East Coast that I didn't even know existed. You know, like, I didn't even know Nags Head was a place until a few storms. So those of you in the South would be like, oh, I know about that. I didn't know Nags Head was a place until storms, and the weatherman comes and gets us ready and lets us know. And then what happens? It's off. The prediction is off. The storm goes into the Atlantic. And the very next day, they show up and they still have a job. Do you realize what amazing job security that is to be able to predict something with certainty, with conviction, to give a forecast that causes people to exit cities, and then it doesn't happen, and the next day they're still employed. Try that with your job. Try to forecast your spreadsheet. Try to give a report to your boss that's like a prognostication, like, you know, this, this child could get better or maybe doesn't get better. I don't know. Like, it, we don't live life like that. Oh, if we were all weathermen <laughs> and meteorologists. But the reality is that each of us spend our days trying to manage the one thing we can't manage. We try to manage uncertainty. It's the one thing that we try to act like we can manage. We try to tell ourselves and we let ourselves get duped as if this could be managed, as if life is built on certainty. And life is so short, and in the face of all the uncertainties that we face, that we don't want to face, that we want to tell ourselves are not real, we want to act as if life is built on certainty, we have all these different coping mechanisms. If there was a spectrum of coping mechanisms to the, to the complexity of life, the uncertainty, I would say that on the one end, there, is, there are those that say, because life is short and I can't manage the uncertainty of it and I want to act like I can, here's what I'll do. I'll live for pleasure. I'll live for gain because I don't know when I will go. That's on one extreme of the spectrum. The other extreme is because I can't manage uncertainty and I want to act like life is built on certainty, I know what I'll do. I won't do anything. I'll be passive because what's the point? I find it interesting that in this text, as we've been talking about, as we've been studying this book, it's written to persecuted Christians, Jewish believers in Jesus whose lives have been uprooted because of their faith. They've had to leave house and home. They're on the run. They're trying to reestablish their life. And James is writing to them from that perspective. What does it look like to have a true, authentic faith even in the midst of the turbulence and uncertainty of life? And to them, he basically pulls, off the cur pulls back the curtains and exposes how they approach life. And in fact, as we look at this, I think we're going to come to recognize that James is exposing how we approach life. How we try to numb ourselves from the uncertainty of life. How we try to tell ourselves that life is built on certainty, even though it isn't. And James exposes some of the ways that we go about living our lives in the face of all this uncertainty. He begins by saying this. One of the ways we approach life is to go about it this way. 
verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. The first thing that we tend to do in our attempts to ignore the uncertainty of life is that we actually try to fake ourselves into believing that there is certainty. James says that one of the ways that we try to approach life is to act as if today or tomorrow is at our disposal. As if we can plan past the next moment. So often we plan and we make plans and we live as if we have forever. And we have a vision for our lives as if time is always in our corner, as if we can assume that tomorrow will actually happen, as if we have control over it. Now, this is unsettling because right now, do you actually, I know I don't, do you actually want to sit with that reality for a long period of time to say, tomorrow is not promised? None of us wants to live with that for long. It's an unsettling idea that tomorrow some of us, it's possible, may not wake up. That's horrifying. That's a heavy thought. And yet James is saying one of the ways that we often live our lives is if to act as if tomorrow is promised. And so we're cavalier. Today or tomorrow we'll make these plans says, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. So the first way that we try to approach the uncertainty of life is to act as if there is certainty, and we assume that time is at our disposal, that we have unlimited quantities of it, that we could make up for lost time as if today can be renewed. The moments of today are gone forever. We will not get back the moments we experience today, they will never happen again. That's why time is the most priceless, precious commodity we have in our existence. That's why rich or poor, they have one equal footing. We all have 24 hours in the same day. We all are entrusted with the same precious resource, that is time. And it would behoove us to make sure that we're not acting as if it's just unlimited that it's at our disposal, that we could do with it whatever we want, that we could act like we have control over it, that we could make plans into the future with certainty. James is saying that is not the way we are to live. So the first thing is we act as if time is at our disposal. We, we uh, tell ourselves we could live with certainty. The next thing that James says is that Within this framework of living, the idea is that today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. If you turn to the person next to you and say, show me the money. <laughs> this is interesting what James points out. If the false way of living life 
trying to lie, ourselves, lie to ourselves as if we're, we actually have certainty, as if we can control time, that it's just unlimited, it's at, it's at our disposal, we can make plans tomorrow, next year, all this stuff. The other major motive, driver, the thing that we tend to view our lives through this lens is we make plans as if our personal ability and the ability to make profit or get gain were the only issues to take into account. See, James essentially is kind of quoting the inner thoughts or the outward expression of people. This is like life, a life mantra or the way of life, the way people live and say, there are many people that live life this way. Say, so today or tomorrow, time is at our disposal. We're going to assume as if we can have certainty even though we can't. And then the next major decision or, or motive or way we view life is we will make decisions based on can we make a profit? Can we gain? How often in our lives is that the major driver as to what causes us to make decisions? We factor very little things except can we gain something from this? Can we gain monetarily from this? Can we make a profit? And that motive can be so strong that what's good for our families, what's good for our mental health, what's good for our ability to rest, what's good for our relationships, all takes a back seat. How often people will make decisions in their careers strictly because it's a great financial decision but they don't weigh in the implications for their families, for their relationships. How many of you have a friend that works just too much? And what, what's the main thing? You, you hardly see them. You can't reach them. And when you do, they probably spend the first few moments apologizing profusely as to why they've lost touch and it's just so busy and, and I, I don't rest. It, this is life for so many, and James is saying, often this is the way so many people approach life. We make decisions in life, denying the fact that we don't have certainty, and then we let the driving motive of profit, of gain, of being able to, uh, we, we, we determine whether we can do something. Let me be clear on this. Sometimes the only factor that we consider before making a decision is, can I do this? And we never ask, should I do this? Can I pull this off? Can I take this role? Can I grow into this promotion? Can I add extra responsibility? And if you're ambitious, you have energy, you're creative, you have gifts, a lot of times that answer is very easily yes. But just because you and I can do something doesn't mean we should do it. And just because something will bring financial gain, as in this situation, will carry on business and make money, doesn't mean that we should let that be the only motivation. Because in this framework of life that James is confronting, there's one thing that's overlooked constantly. When we deny uncertainty, 
when we act as if we have certainty, when we think we, can, we are actually in control, when we make decisions based on our ability to get gain and we don't consider whether we should do this in the first place, one of the things that we are constantly ignoring in the midst of all that is the frailty of life. Look at what James says. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? Hear this. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Whew. How many are glad you woke up this morning to be told that your life is nothing but a mist? A mist that is here today and gone in the next moment. Oh, I, I, I don't know about you, but I don't like to hear my life described in these terms. It's unsettling. I don't want to imagine my life through, these, through this reality that life is a mist at best. That we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. You know, one of the things that this pandemic, especially in the early phases, did and that we fought and we resisted so much that it stripped all of us from the illusion of control. We lived with that illusion for all of our lives and then all of a sudden that illusion was stripped from all of us and we realized how little control we actually have, especially in the face of so many lives being lost. We, we have some separation from it now. It isn't on the news as much. We don't talk about it as much, but do you remember in the early days, and I know this is, some of you don't want me to bring this up. I don't want to bring it up because I want to detach. You want to detach. We want to ignore. But you remember in the early days the constant reminder of the death toll and the mounting body count and the trucks that were coming to hospitals, the freezers. Had a friend that ran a funeral parlor in East New York before the pandemic. A busy month was two to three funerals a week. During the pandemic, he had 60 a week. Just one funeral parlor. The reality is we want to move on from that. We don't want to be reminded of that. We want to live as if tomorrow is promised, as if we can control it. We want to make plans surely from the basis of, am I able to do this? We don't want to consider, should I do this? And even though so much of life was canceled, disrupted, now, 19, 20 months after, we're all trying to get back on the saddle of the illusion that we actually had control to begin with. 
But it's not just there. It doesn't just end there. James says in verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It's interesting because contrasted to that kind of posture of the heart, verse 16 says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And so he's putting these things in contrast to each other, that one way of living life is to live life boasting, living life from a place of arrogant self-confidence, as if we got this, as if we're actually in control, as if we get to call the shots, as if the, the only thing we have to consider is our abilities. Will this benefit us? We never consider should we do this in the first place. We have that juxtaposed to this posture of humility that we're invited into, where we know the good we should do and we do it. But when we're living from a place of arrogance and self-confidence and thinking that we're actually driving the car of life, we can so often know better, yet not do better. Know what's right, and yet ignore it. This is us. James is talking to us. If I've ever read something that described the way the typical New Yorker lives their life, it's this. We, we, we live as if there's certainty. We live as if we're actually in control. We make decisions based on what benefits us and do we have the ability to do these things versus, and we don't consider whether we should do it in the first place. We ignore the frailty of life in New York all the time. Look at the way we cross the street. We cross the street as if cars should be afraid of us. We do wreck, just get, just walking down the street is an act of incredible bravery. The things you have to ignore, we ignore our frailty. But contrast to that, if this is how we make choices, this is how we see life, this is how we manage the uncertainty of life, the question that I was asking myself, how did Jesus live? What can we learn from Jesus? How did he approach life? What was different in the way that he managed all of these complexities. And there is an incredible verse in the Gospel of John that gives us an answer that we so desperately need to digest. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says this, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. What this verse tells us, it gives us the key to interpret, to understand how Jesus lived his life. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus or not, it would be good for us to pay attention to how Jesus lived life, because even if you don't believe he's king, he's Messiah, he's Savior, we can all agree that he lived an incredibly flourishing life. That Jesus lived a life that we could all benefit from if we sought to live in that way. 
And for those of us that are believers and followers of Jesus, Jesus tells us his secret, the way he lived life that's very different than the way we often live life. He said he did nothing by himself. He said the son can do nothing by himself. That strikes at the core of our desire to live independent, self-resourcing lives where we don't need anybody. We got this. We're in control. We rely on no one but our gifts, our ability, our willpower. Jesus says, I can do nothing by myself. You realize for so many of us, the source of our anxiety is because we are trying to live with certainty when the fact is there is no certainty. And you're trying to keep something together in your own power that only God himself can keep together. No wonder we're so stressed and anxious. We're trying to keep the fiber of the universe together in our own strength when there's only one who can do that. Jesus says, I can do nothing by myself. The question for us is, what are we trying to do by ourselves? Examine your life, reflect, and ask yourself, what am I trying to do on my own? If you can be honest about that and give voice to that, then you are identifying the source of your anxiety, your stress, your lack of peace, because you're identifying an area where you're trying to live life as if you're in control. As if you have the power to make this happen. You're identifying an area of life where it's all resting on your shoulders and your shoulders alone. Can I tell you, God did not create us to carry the weight and the complexity of life on our own. He created us to be dependent on him. Your life and my life doesn't make sense. It ceases to make sense the more independent we seek to live from God. The more we try to do this on our own, the more we try to willpower through this, it becomes unlivable. You were created as a dependent creature. And we were created in such a way that life only makes sense and it's only livable in a relationship of dependence on God. Jesus says, I can do nothing by myself. But not only that, he says, he can only do what he sees his father doing. This is the key to understanding how different Jesus lived his life versus how James is describing we often live our lives. Jesus, for him, his decisions were, were he arrived at his decisions through prayerful discernment. He didn't just do things because he could. He did things because he should. And he knew he should do something because he prayerfully discerned and saw the Father is doing this. Therefore, I should do this. In essence, Jesus was always showing up to something after he identified the Father was already there. The Father was already at work. And he was joining the Father. The problem so often is that we are joining things that God is not waiting for us. 
We're going into places and things and relationships that we never discerned was God there and inviting us into. The truth is life is filled with suffering and setbacks and uncertainty. And even when you follow God closely, you can't control the outcome. But I often wonder how many crashes in life could have been avoided if we would have prayerfully, slowly said, where is the Father and where is he inviting me into? Because so often, that's not why we make decisions. So often we make decisions and we rush into things because we're not concerned about where is the Father, what is the Father doing, and what is he inviting me. We're concerned with what can give me a name, what can give me status, what can give me comfort, what can give me power, what can continue the illusion of my control. But that's not how Jesus lived. He lived with purpose. He didn't live for pleasure. He lived a life of prayerful discernment. The only way to get out of this rat race of living the way James describes, living as if we have certainty, as if we have control, making decisions purely based on our ability and what will benefit us, ignoring the frailty of life, is to live as, as Jesus did, to live a life of prayerful discernment. And James gives us the language, the words. In the words that James gives us is actually a worldview. These are a few short words, but what he gives us is not just something we should say and pay lip service to. Actually, this describes a way of life, a fundamentally different way of life that challenges our independence, that challenges our mindset that we can actually control our lives and it rests on us and we should do things based on what benefits us and our ability alone. James gives us a different way of living when he gives us these words. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will. Can you say those words with me? If it is the Lord's will. This is the contrast. This is the different way of life that James is saying followers of Jesus should embrace. And in these words contain a different orientation toward life. If it is the Lord's will. Let's unpack this very quickly. Let's start with the word if. We don't like that word. Because that word communicates uncertainty. That word communicates the possibility that things may not go according to our plan. How many would love to be proposed to, right? Imagine for, for if, if you're married now, imagine when you were single and you were waiting to be proposed to. And if you're single, imagine that day is coming. And someone proposes to you and says, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? And you're like, oh, that's great. That's awesome. Yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. And now you begin to plan a life together. But the first big thing is the wedding. And there's a nice cake, nice venue. Everybody's getting dressed up. And the night before, person who asks you to be with them says, 
I'll show up tomorrow if I feel like it. If the weather's okay. If the Knicks win. If. I don't know how you were raised, but the house I was raised in, the reaction would not be pleasant. <laughs> Someone would be getting slapped. Because that is offensive. If, if, it, it, the idea of holding life loosely is unsettling for us. We don't want to make plans and hold it loosely. We want to make plans and assume that there's certainty. We want to assume the posture that we're actually driving, that we can predict tomorrow, that we can control the weather. But James says a different way of living is to orient our hearts around the reality of if. Things may not go the way I think they will. Despite our best plans, if we don't know. It says, if the Lord wills. That next word, the Lord. This is totally different than the way James described most of us live because now he's saying, hold your plans loosely while you hold to Jesus tightly. Saying, if, that's the open hands, the Lord, that's clenched hands, I'm holding on to him, if he wills. We tend to do it the opposite, right? We tend to hold to our plans tightly, and we tend to hold to Jesus loosely. James says, no, a different way of living is one recognizing that God has a plan and we hold to him trusting in his plan and we hold our plans loosely. Can you take a deep breath and, and, and remind yourself God has a plan? God has a plan. For some of us, that's a relief. For some of us, that's a bit terrifying. Because we're like, if he has a plan, everything around me doesn't seem like it's being well planned out. Things seem chaotic. Things seem out of control. But James is saying, no, no, no. The way we live differently, contrary to the way most people live, is to acknowledge that we hold our plans loosely. We hold to the Lord tightly and we trust in his plan over our plans. So often we come to God with our plans and we say, bless this. Rather than coming to God with open hands and saying, what's your plan? I'm gonna hold to you tightly, trusting in your plan and ultimately, I know if my plans sync with your plans, then my plans will be blessed. But if I'm trying to force you to bless my plans, there is no guarantee in that. God is not obliged to bless plans that he did not author. 
And so often we're begging God to bless things that he never asked us to step into. This is a different way. If the Lord wills. Now, let's be clear. This is not a passive way of living, but this is a different way of holding on tightly. See, because we can either hold tightly to our plans and loosely to Christ or hold tightly to Christ and loosely to our plans. That's what James is trying to get us to wrap our hearts around. If the Lord wills. Make your plans. Make your five-year plans. Make your ten-year plans. You know, often, sometimes when I can't sleep, I imagine my life 30 years from now. And I have plans. I have thoughts. I have desires. But I'm telling you, I'm, I'm trying my best to hold them loosely because I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know who's going to catch a fit driving home today. Will it be Michael? Will it be Alexa? <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Will it be sunny? Will it be rainy? And the weatherman doesn't know. We have to hold life loosely. Though we make plans as we hold to Jesus tightly. See, and Jesus is giving us the most countercultural way of living the world has ever seen because in this framework of if the Lord wills, it actually takes our human frailty into consideration. That's the if part. That's the recognition that I can make plans, but I could be off. I, I can make plans thinking it's God's will, but it's possible I could miss the mark every now and then. So I'm going to hold it with this big if. If the Lord wills, it takes our, our human frailty into consideration, but also it, it reorients us to no longer just make plans because we can. It reorients us to consider it's not enough to say, I can do this. We have to ask, should I do this? Is the Lord leading me to do this? What Jesus is freeing us is from money and success being the primary drivers to our decision-making. And he says, no, the thing that should drive your decision-making is not success, comfort, accolades. It's the Lord's plan. You know what success in life is? It's not fame. It's not notoriety. It's the plan of your life being in sync with the plan of God. And at the end of that, hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant. See, we make plans as if we're in charge and have complete control. That's our default, but what if we made plans while completely trusting in God and surrendering our will to Him, acknowledging that He is in complete control? The will of the Lord. See, the, the gospel frees us from the bondage of our own will driving our life. It'll either be your will or the will of God driving your life. And the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection frees us from the tyranny of our own wills being the only thing driving us because now we are subjects under the will of God. That's our true north. That's the thing that matters most. That's what drives us. That's what filters everything for us. Is this God's will or is it not? 
And this is where it's interesting, the very last words of these verses. James says, verse 17, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You know, so often we, we talk about sin as this list of do's and don'ts, things that we should avoid doing. But actually, James reframes it and says, you know what sin is? It's ignoring the will of God. It's knowing the good you should do, the will of God, the Lord's will, and not doing it. It's boasting in our plans, in our schemes, or resting confidently in His. So here's something for us to process. For some of us, we haven't thought of sin in this category. We haven't thought of, am I living in sin, based on the question of, am I living for the Lord's will? Am I living with open hands to my plans but clenched fists to the Lord and holding on to Him tightly? Am I living not ignoring my frailty? Am I acknowledging that I can't control anything, that He's in control? Am I making decisions just because I can? Or have I actually prayerfully discerned, is God leading me in this direction? Am I, are my plans syncing up with his plans? As the worship team comes forward, I'll close with this. There's a verse in Scripture that says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's a powerful Scripture. But it's often misapplied. For some people, they think, if I just delight myself in God, he'll give me whatever my heart wants. So say, I'm going to delight myself in Jesus because I would really love a Ferrari. And that's how some folks erroneously think it works. But actually, it's not how it works. If, if you look at what the original language connotes, it works this way. If you delight yourself in God, he will place his desires in your heart. And you will wake up wanting what he wants. If you're struggling and saying, I don't know how to live this way that James describes. This feels forced. It feels difficult. Here's the beautiful thing. If you turn your heart and delight toward Jesus, he will begin to transform your heart and make you want what he wants. Obedience is never meant to be a forced, gnawing your teeth kind of thing. It's meant to be a joyous reaction of our souls from his transforming work inside of us. If I can invite us to stand. And as we begin to pray and direct our hearts and worship toward Jesus in these next few moments, I can't encourage you enough to not, don't let this moment just breeze by as just some songs and then we go. Could you grab hold of God in these next few moments? Could you direct your heart to Him 
and allow him to begin to transform your heart away from your plans, your desires, to his plans, his desires. If you feel comfortable doing so, could I invite you to raise your hands and begin to open up your heart and talk to Jesus. Ask him to make what James described, the way you live your life. Lord, help me to live as if your will is what's most important to me. To live with open hands with respect to my plans, but to, to live with closed hands, holding tightly to you. Change my heart. I don't want to ignore my frailty. I don't want to act as if I'm in control. You're Lord. You're, you're in control, and I come to you now. As we're worshiping, as we're directing our hearts to God, you can slip out of your seat at any moment and go and receive prayer in the back to the, the back of to my left, your right. The prayer team is awaiting as we're worshiping God. You can slip out and receive prayer. Let's sing, let's direct our hearts to God. He's here and he wants to set us free from anxiety, from the illusion of control. He wants to liberate our hearts even now as we worship him. 